Today I'm going to continue in the Show Us the Father series. I have been in this series for several months now and I've grown very, very fond of it, but I do sense that this boat is coming into the shore and that um, there won't be a whole lot more here, maybe a couple more messages. Today I'm going to minister through a message I'm calling the hope that never disappoints. Two of the antonyms of hope are despair and impossibility. They are just the absolute opposite of hope. Neither of these antonyms, despair and impossibility, are building blocks of the new covenant of grace that we are in today. We are not people of despair, and with God, all things are possible. Come on. It's true, isn't it? Our hope has never been in a perfect world. I hope your hope is not in a perfect government. I hope your hope is not in perfect financial arrangements, even perfect health, although these are very important, or even a perfect family. Our hope is in a perfect Christ. Our hope is in a perfect Jesus. That's where our hope is found, friends. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 23 through 25, we find these words. Look what Peter would write. He would say, for you have been born again. I love those words. You have been born again. What does that mean, born again? See, if you walked up to a person on the street and you asked them, do you know what it means to be born again? Most people wouldn't have the foggiest idea of what you're talking about. Born again, that seems like funny language. In fact, Israel's greatest teacher, Nicodemus, didn't understand it when Jesus told him, except the man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so Peter would reach back and no doubt pick up that same language, that same language that Jesus used with Nicodemus. And he would write, for you have been born again. This is such simple language. Born means to be given life, right? When a child is born, that child has been given life. And again, it speaks of from above, because we are born from below initially. And if we're going to be born again, then we are born from above. So when Peter would write this, he would say, for you have been born again, or literally he was saying, for you have been given life from above. Given life from above. <laughs> I love this part. He says, not of perishable seed. I don't know about you, but we seem like we throw an awful lot of things away. A lot of things perish on us. But he says, this kind of life that I'm talking about, this born from above life that I'm talking about, he said, it didn't come from a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. So what did Peter do? He equated people to all people, in fact, to grass and flowers. Now I want you to meditate on the words you're looking at there for a moment. He says, all people are like grass. Not some people, all people. All people are like grass, and all their glory, that is their adornment, all their glory is like the flowers of the field, 
He says the grass withers and the flowers fall. And as I look into the eyes of each one of you today, I have to subconsciously deal with the reality that one by one, each one of you will fall like a flower into the ground. I know that's not something we like to think about, but it's true. Death does not discriminate. It does not always say, I'll take the oldest one first. It does not always say, I'll take the sickest one first. But it does take us all at one time or another. While you have ears to hear, and while I have breath to speak, I want you to know that I love you. I love you, Fred. I love you, Judy. I love you, Jim and Mary. I love you, Jojo. <laughs> I love you, David and Marty. I love you, Jean. I love you, Michelle. I love you, Patty and PG. And I especially love you, Miss Valerie. I love everybody, to be honest with you. All those that are here, all those that are not here. And I know my buddy Mark Yoder will be listening to this by podcast because he's faithful to do that. I want you to know, Mark Yoder, I love you, brother. You have been with us for a long time now. My deepest desire before your grass withers and your flowers fall, the petals from your flowers fall, is that you would become established in the truth that you have been born again. That means you have been given life from above through the imperishable seed. His name is Jesus Christ. You have been given imperishable seed from him and imperishable life from him. And whether you cherish the seed that he's put on the inside of you or you don't, some people do, some people don't. And whether you do or you don't, I want you to know something. The scriptures say his seed remains. The seed that he plants on the inside of a believer remains. You can't dig it out. You can't cut it out. You can't flush it out. You can't make it leave. His seed remains on the inside of us. His promises to us are living and they endure forever. And through the gift of life, through the gift of grace, through the gift of salvation, we say, through the gift of righteousness, we are escorted by the hope that never disappoints. The hope that is found in God never disappoints. I have never been disappointed by God. When things don't go my way, I come to the realization, in some cases, I may have caused it. In some cases, others may have caused it. In some cases, we live in a fallen world. We just live in a, in a world that's in decay. And I get it. But I never say, God, this is your fault. It's never His fault. We can trust in Him. He has given us a hope, an imperishable seed that can never be destroyed. It always remains. And this hope, I want you to see this. I'm going to sound like a broken record today, but this is the hope that never disappoints. Not once in a while, not from time to time, not occasionally. His hope never disappoints. In Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 24, we find these words. A man's strength, power, and riches will one day fade away. Not even nations endure forever. Now park a ribbon in your mind there for just a second. Let's skip up just a few verses to Proverbs chapter 31 and verse 30. Here's what's written. It says, Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Let me ask you a question. What was the common thread 
in all of the scriptures that I've just read, the ones from 1 Peter and the ones from Proverbs. What was the common thread? I'll tell you what the common thread was. They affirm that circumstantial hope and natural hope are no more than transitory hope. Here one day, moved on the next. I'm talking about the hope that we would assign to a bouquet of flowers. I always have such hope when I buy my wife flowers. They look so beautiful. They adorn our home so well. But then I come to the realization that one by one, those flowers will fail. The petals will fall. It's temporary. It's a transitory beauty. It's a transitory hope. Nobody buys a bouquet of flowers and they last forever. They have a transitory glory that comes and goes. I'm talking about a hope, again, that we would assign to grass and flowers, strength and powers, the hope that we would credit to riches and nations and even beauty. All of these, friends, will fade And all of these have the potential to disappoint, don't they? Friends, may I remind us that our hope does not come from our own petals. Our hope does not come from our own wallets. Our hope does not come from our own strength. And our hope does not come from our own gregarious charm, how charming you think you might be. Your hope is not found there. Our hope is found in Christ Jesus, period. When the Apostle Paul wrote to his beloved protege, Timothy, he would remember the foundation that their hope was built upon. The foundation, I believe, that the entire church ought to rest upon. The foundation of Christ plus nothing. The foundation of the hope that never disappoints. What were the Apostle's first words in the letter that he wrote to Timothy? What would they be? Do you remember the old adage, you don't get a second chance to make a first impression? How many of you remember that? How many of you have said that before? We have, haven't we? Therefore, what would be the first thing on the Apostle Paul's mind? I think sometimes when we think about writing a letter today, we say maybe an email. We've already thought about what we might say. And then when we sit down, the dear Johnny part is pretty easy. Dear Susie part is pretty easy. And then we go into this meditation mode. We begin to go into, what do I want to convey? What is it that I want to say? What do I want him to know right out the gate? So what would be the first words that Paul would write to Timothy? What does he want Timothy's heart to default to when the day comes that Timothy's own strength? fails, when Timothy's own power fails, when Timothy's riches fade, and when Timothy comes to the realization that his grass is withering and his petals are falling, or when Timothy bumps into ministers with the message of death. Paul's going to cover that in his first letter to him. He's basically saying, Timothy, you're going to run into people that have a message of death. And there's something I want you to know when that that happens. What does he want Timothy to remember? What does he want Timothy to know when he faces the religious teachers, those who want to mix law with grace, those who believe that a man's hope is found in his own strength and his own ability to keep himself righteous? What would he want him to know? What is going to be your default? That's a good question, isn't it? What would yours be? What would mine be? 
Well, if there's one thing I would want to know, my default in every situation where I'm disappointed when I don't understand something, what would my default be there? I'll tell you what mine is. We find it right there. Do you see it? First Timothy chapter 1 and verse 1. He says, Paul, a missionary of Jesus Christ, sent out by the direct command of God, our Savior, and by Jesus Christ, our Lord. I love these words. Our only hope. Come on, man. He is our only hope. Now, friends, if that will be your default, as you charter through life, as you course through life, as you move through life, that Christ is your only hope. Because I guarantee your petals are going to fall at times. I'm not talking just about your life, but I'm talking about issues. Your petals are going to fall. Grass is going to wither. Strength is going to dry up here and there. Influence is going to fade from here and there. But if you'll remember that one truth, that Christ, our only hope, and so it keeps me from spending too much time in pity party land. It keeps me from spending too much time feeling sorry for myself. It keeps me from spending too much time trying to work out all my problems. The scriptures don't say work out all your problems. It says work out your salvation with fear and trembling, with reverence, with awe. All about what? That Christ is our only hope. Gets me excited. Friends, isn't that simple? Isn't that just a simple default? If you could just say, from this point forward, I'm going to remember those four words. Christ, our only hope. That doesn't mean we're apathetic. That doesn't mean we don't take charge. That doesn't mean we don't do things. No. That doesn't mean we don't occupy until he comes. No. But I'm telling you, as you're walking through all of that, it is Christ our only hope. I love that. In other words, Paul was telling Timothy that any hope outside of Jesus Christ is a transitory hope. It's a withering hope, friends. It's a deceptive hope, and it's a disappointing hope. Timothy, Jesus is not one of many hopes. He is our only hope. He is the hope for every tongue. He is the hope for every nation. He's the hope for every tribe, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl. Jesus is our imperishable hope. He is our living hope. He is our eternal hope. He is our unfading hope. He is the hope that never disappoints us. And he is our blessed hope. Like a diamond showcased against a black velvet backdrop, so it is with grace and hope. Paul showcases the glistening diamond of grace against the silky backdrop of blessed hope. We see that truth in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. I really am very fond of these scriptures, to be honest with you. I think you like them as well. It says here, for the grace of God. Remember, he comes right out with, for the grace of God. There's a relationship between grace and that blessed hope. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. And then it says it. That means grace is the it. Keep it in context. He said it's the grace of God that appears to offer salvation to all people. 
Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. It's not a greasy grace, friends. I can't stand it when I hear that. It's a saving grace. It's an empowering grace. It's not a withering grace. It's a powerful grace. It's a strengthening grace. And he says, it's the grace of God, not the law of God. He said, it's the grace of God that teaches us to say no. So when we're faced with a dilemma, we're faced with a temptation, we're faced with an issue of life, and we need to tap into this grace of God, allow this grace of God to flow in that specific area. He says, look, when you're under attack, he says, look, it is the grace of God that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-control. We can do it, folks. How? By the grace of God. We can do it. If you stumble, you get up. The Bible says, yea, though a righteous man falls seven times, he will rise again. That seven doesn't mean just natural seven. It literally means an infinite amount of times. He will rise again. So it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the, there it is, the blessed hope. Friends, there's going to be times that you have to wait on your promises. Times when you have to wait on the visions that God has given you. We see it throughout the scriptures. Joseph had to wait. David had to wait. Jesus had to wait. What makes you think you don't have to wait? But what are you waiting on? And what are you waiting for? You're walking in grace and you're waiting for that blessed hope to prepare the way for you. He makes it so easy. He gives us rivers in the wilderness, friends. Makes it so simple. While we wait for the blessed hope, And while we're waiting, so often people will begin to grow weary. They'll get a little tired. They'll think God needs a little help. They'll think God's a little hard of hearing. So they grow weary in well-doing. And do you know what often happens? Is This is the trick of the enemy, is we go back to performance, trying to perform to make God's promises come true. Oh, I learned that so many years ago. You just don't do that. In fact, I don't even have any desire to make his promises come true. When it was prophesied over me in the 1990s that I would stand as a pastor and a minister and that God would change my doctrine, really, I was no hurry. In fact, I was praying that the prophet got it wrong, to be honest with you. I was was praying he got it wrong, uh, but he got it exactly right. While we wait for the blessed hope, He says, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful? (laughs) Isn't that awesome? Friends, Jesus is our only hope and he is our blessed hope. He is the hope that was sent from above. Why did Jesus come? He came for many reasons. First of all, I think he came to show us the Father. He is so in love with the Father. I don't know about you, but I love showing off my wife. I love showing off my kids. I love showing off the people I'm in love with. And Jesus came and his heart, the core of his heart. Yes, he came to die for sin. Yes, all that's true. But he came. He said, I want you to see my father. 
You're not going to believe it when you see him. He will blow your mind. He is so awesome. First of all, Jesus came to show us the beauty of his father. He came to show us how to live life and see good days. I said that earlier, and I believe that. This is not just about fire insurance. Salvation is not just about fire insurance. And someday in the sweet by and by, I'm going to cross over into the Jordan and I'm going to get there somewhere. No, he came to give us life that we might have life and see good days. Now, so every day I wake up and I'm looking forward to living life. I'm looking forward to seeing good days. And yes, there will be things that come along and try to pull you out of your life and pull you out of your good days. But remember what I said? Where's our hope found in? Our only hope is Christ. I wasn't hoping that you would say everything right for me to have a good day. I wasn't hoping that you would do everything right for me just to really get my fancy tickled. No! My hope is in Christ. He's our only hope. He came so that we might be born again. What does that mean? Given life from above. He came to give us life. What kind of life? Eternal life. He came to give us a hope and a future. He is the fulfillment of Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, plans to give you a hope and a future. I get so excited about that. Jesus is the fulfillment of what Jeremiah said. Remember when I said, my plans are to give you a hope and a future? I've arrived. I want to show you my daddy first. He's beautiful. He came to strip away the fading and transitory glory of the law. Friends, Jesus came to not only reveal, but he came to release the hope that never disappoints. Let me ask you a question. How is it, come on, be honest with yourself. How is it that our minds can so quickly move from imperishable hope, the hope that never disappoints, to transitory hope, the hope that is no hope at all? How can we do that? That's a good question, isn't it? I mean, just in our minds, we do that. One moment, one day, we have such hope. We are on top of Hope Mountain with imperishable hope. And then maybe the next day or two, suddenly we've got this transitory hope. My hope seemed to have gotten up and left. Where did my hope go to? And then we're chasing hope. No, friends, hope never leaves you. It's only in your mind because you've got so much other activity there. You've got so much other indoctrination there and they're just incongruent with one another. You see, not everyone that is wealthy is educated. Would you agree with that? See, you can be dumber in a box of rocks and win the lottery. You're suddenly very, very wealthy, but it doesn't mean you're educated. Oh, their wallet can support caviar, but their vocabulary can't spell it. It's true. We have untold riches living on the inside of us. Yet so many of God's people are uneducated to its benefits. 
That's why David would write in Psalm 103, he'd say, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities and healeth all thine diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like that of the eagle. Those are the benefits. Some of the benefits. Don't you love benefits? David was saying back there in Psalm 103, he forgiveth all your sins. In fact, he called them iniquities. Iniquities are even more twisted than sins, friends. Iniquities comes from that word wicker or something where you would make a wicker basket. I mean, it's just twisted. It's just weaved. It's gnarly stuff. He said he forgives you for all your iniquities. And he healeth all thine diseases. He redeems you. That means he buys you out of. He buys you out of the pit. And when he brings you up out of the pit, he crowns you. It's like he puts a crown on your head. He crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. We forget that we have benefits in Christ. We forget that we have the benefits of the new covenant. So we're rich but we can't spell our benefits. We don't know what our benefits are. We move from imperishable hope to transitory hope. Primarily, notice I said primarily, not the only reason, but primarily because we intermittently quit trusting in Jesus' finished work, our only hope. And then we slip back under the influence of false doctrine and myths and speculations and genealogies and performance and even the law. We slip back under that performance mentality. These are enemies of grace and truth. The enemies that Paul cautioned Timothy about after he told him that Jesus Christ was our only hope. See, that's how Paul would start his letter. He would say, Timothy, Jesus Christ is our only hope. And then he would go on to write right after that what Timothy was going to run into at Ephesus. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, we find these words. In other words, we're continuing. Paul's already said, he's our only hope. We'll skip verse 2 and jump up to verse 3. It says this. Paul says, as I urged you when I went to Macedonia, he said, Timothy, stay in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. How many of you know we live in the same world that Paul and Timothy lived in? How many of you know it hasn't changed? It's the same world, friends. Why would Paul say that? Because he understands, look, as long as this other stuff exists, myths and genealogies and crazy doctrines, he said, people cannot be free. They cannot be free with that in their hearts. And he said, Timothy, I just don't want you to find another corner to preach on. I want you to command those who are teaching that nonsense to stop it. Now that is bold, friends. Come on. That is bold. He says such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. Did you hear that? He said God's work is by faith. It's grace through faith. This is how this kingdom works. It works by grace and faith. God's work is by faith. Next scriptures. 
I love this. He says, the goal of this command is love. This is so important, friends. It's not a mean-spirited goal. It's not a goal that's went awry. He says, the goal of this command is love. Timothy, when you do this, you do this in love. And so sometimes in life, we have to encounter certain things and we have to say some things, but it's important that we do it in love. The goal of the Christian walk is love, friends. We love people wherever we go. And so he says to him, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these, what, these what? Love, pure heart, good conscience, faith. He says some have gotten away from those building blocks. And if you get away from love and a pure conscience and faith and a pure heart, what have you got left? You've got mean-spirited religion is what you've got left. He says, some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Now, listen, if the Apostle Paul said they don't know what they're talking about, then he knows. He heard their rhetoric. The Apostle Paul was absolute elite in the law. If anybody knew the law, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, friends. He knew the law, and he could listen to somebody even spewing the law and said, they still don't know what they're talking about. They don't have the right message, but the message they got is not right either. He said, they don't even know what they're talking about. So here's an expert saying, they don't know what they're saying. Next scriptures. Look at these words. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is not made for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. Boy, that is just a mouthful. And as you go down through that list, you think, golly, boy, that sounds like a rough world. This is the world Paul was living in. This is the world you and I live in too. What was the apostle Paul saying? Paul was reinforcing in Timothy's heart that a believer cannot find comfort in the law. He cannot find hope in the law. The law does just the opposite. It will rob you of your hope. It will steal your hope from you. You say, Pastor Mark, didn't the Apostle Paul say that the law was good? He sure did. But did you hear what he said? He says the law is good when it is used properly. Properly means when the law is used to bring people to Christ. Now, friends, look, there's one thing I have found in life is that you can't take experience away from somebody. If they've been down a road or two, you just have to listen to them. And I have served in outreach ministry for an awful lot of years. I saw scores of people come to Christ. Sometimes one-on-one, -on -one, sometimes the husband and wife at the same time, sometimes the whole family at one time. And every time I would take someone aside to talk to them about Christ, it wouldn't take me very long to figure out if they were hostile toward this gospel. 
If they were hostile towards Christ and they were hostile toward Christianity and this gospel, the law was an effective tool. And I would bring the law in just to break down their pride and their arrogance. But I wouldn't leave them there. And I could see the moment on their countenance when something snapped, when something changed. And then I would look at them and I would say, do you know what God did for you so that you wouldn't have to spend an eternity separated from him? And more times than not, they would say, no, I don't know what he did for me. And I would say, he gave us Jesus Christ. He died for your sins on an old rugged cross so that you could be saved. And I would watch people at that moment, so many of them, I've lost count, so many of them just fall into tears at that point in time. If I would have got this in reverse order, because I've done it before, I've walked up to people and said, do you know what God did for you so you wouldn't have to spend eternity separated from him? They'd say, no, I don't know. I said, he died on the cross for you. And they'd just go, yeah, okay. But the law is effective when it's used properly is what the Apostle Paul said. So when we run up against people that are just self-righteous, prideful, the law is a very effective tool to bring people to Christ. The law cannot save you. The Bible says there is no flesh that is justified by the law. We're all justified by his grace. Please, I know you've heard me say these scriptures before, but I really happen to be partial to these. I want you to underscore these words in your heart this morning. The law was. What does was mean? <laughs> was is not the same as is, is it? Uh-uh. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Man is not justified by any other means. By grace are you saved through faith. And so the law was the schoolmaster. I always like to say it was like the chauffeur that brought you to the cross, would open the door for you and let you out, and then go get another one, and go get another one. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, in other words, after that faith is bloomed, after that faith has taken root, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. Now, what is the schoolmaster? Paul just said the law was our schoolmaster. And he says, once that faith blooms in your heart, he said, you are no longer under the schoolmaster. For ye are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. <laughs> so plain, isn't it? So plain. In other words, your contribution to keep you saved means nothing. It's like a schoolmaster. It brought you to Christ, but you're no longer under the schoolmaster. You're no longer under the law. Paul told Timothy that the law was not made for the righteous. Now please, 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 please ask yourself this question. Are you righteous? Say it inside your heart. Am I righteous? Let those words echo just for a moment in your heart. I want you to answer that echo too. Am I righteous? What does that mean? Am I justified? What does that mean? Have I been declared innocent by God? What does that mean? Am I a son? Am I a daughter of God? It's all the same. Am I born again? Have I been given life from above? Answer that question. And if the answer to that question is yes, then you are righteous. And Paul said that the law was not made for the righteous. So simple. You say, Pastor Mark, can you explain that truth in a manner so that I can 
wrap my brain around it a little easier. I'll be happy to. You see, the law is like a sledgehammer. How many of you know that a sledgehammer is not a delicate tool? Come on. You ever swing one? It's not a delicate tool. It's made for wrecking stuff at times. It's a persuasive tool is what it is. It's the perfect tool when you need to drive a stake in the ground. It's the perfect tool when you need to break up something hard like fallow ground. Or on a spiritual level, we would say like pride, like self-righteousness, like independence, like stubbornness. It's the perfect tool for that. Friends, I have never looked into a watchmaker's tool bag. But if I ever do, I can guarantee you in advance I won't find a sledgehammer. I won't find a sledgehammer in there. It would be out of place in his bag. It would serve no purpose. It's a tool of destruction. You and I are like fine Swiss watches in the hands of the God of hope. He has given us the sweet Holy Spirit as our helper, not the law. He does not crush us with a sledgehammer when we miss the mark. Instead, His gracious eyes look into the face of that watch, and then He gently corrects us with the same love that the Apostle Paul encouraged Timothy with when he wrote, the goal of this command is love. Can you see Daddy just so gently correcting? You ever adjust your watch because the time's not right? You don't beat on your watch because it's not right. You gently correct it. It's not made to get beat upon. We're not made to be beat upon by our Father. Gentle correction is fine. The writer of Proverbs told us that beauty was fleeting. You remember when I read that? Which means that it's transitory. Here one day, there the next. I want you to imagine with me for just a moment. Can you do this? Let's just go on a little trip here for a second. I want you to imagine with me for a moment that each and every one of us has been given the opportunity, given the ability to pick an age that our physical bodies and our appearances would be forever sealed in. Now think about that for just a second. Can you see yourself? I'm fairly certain that we all reached back to an age from the past, didn't we? Why didn't we just go, I'm just fine the way I am? I reached back to 27 when I had muscles like Popeye, man, and a lot of hair and dark hair. And Valerie doesn't like that picture, but... She thinks I look too, I don't know what you used to say, something too sure of himself. Did you notice we didn't reach into the future? We didn't settle for the present. We reached back into our past and found an age. Why? Why did we do that? Because anyone who has lived long enough, you've been around for a little while, okay? is already aware that some of our strength has faded. Some of our beauty has already faded. Come on, just be honest with yourself. Now be real, okay? I like the way I looked better when I was in my 20s than I do now. Just be honest, okay? I don't want to go back into my 20s because I didn't know Jesus back then. I'll settle for this and Jesus, okay? He's my only hope. 
That hair wasn't my hope. <laughs> that gold hair and bone chain around my neck was not my hope. Oh yeah, that was on me too. It was not my hope. I thought it was at one time. <laughs> Luke would uh, write something that somewhat paralleled the Proverbs 31 woman's fleeting beauty. Luke would say, a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of his possessions. In other words, if you're going to measure your life just by your possessions, bigger barns, more crops, bigger houses, more cars, more money in the bank. Luke would say a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things which he possesses. When Luke wrote those words, he was speaking of natural things. Natural things will disappoint to us. Natural things cannot satisfy us long term. Natural things do not come with the benefits of Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is in me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of His benefits. Friends, we possess a greater and everlasting beauty it's a beauty that's found in the hope that never disappoints. It's the hope that Jesus came to give us. It's an eternal hope that comes from the encouragement of the Scriptures. Where do we find this hope at? Is it in my bread box at home? That's a kind of different kind of hope, isn't it? You know, is, is it in my suitcase? Where's this hope at? We find this hope in the Scriptures. That's why I encourage people, you got to be in the Word. I'm giving you a command out of love, but you've got to be in the Word. Listen, your Bible can fall apart or you can fall apart. Get in the Word and you won't fall apart. But this encouragement comes from the Scriptures. You say, Mark, you've got a Scripture that proves that? Absolutely. Romans chapter 15 and verse 4. The Apostle Paul would write, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, not to us, but for us. Okay? Those things that were written so that we could have hope. He said, all the stuff that's written in the Word. He said, you can look at that. Even if it was a negative situation, a bad situation, you can say, thank God I don't live there. And you've got hope that's brewing in your heart. And he says, that hope comes from the patience and encouragement that the Scriptures give us. Don't you get away from the Word, friends. I'm telling you, don't you get away from the Word. Get in the Word. You will be encouraged all the more. My life is built around the Word. Nothing's more important to me than to hear what my Father has to say to me. But when you get in the Word, He starts communicating to you. He starts speaking to you. It's a relationship. It's fun. And when you look through the lens of grace, when you don't understand, when there's a scripture that seems to be a little frightening, we get to go back to an imperishable hope. We get to go back to an eternal hope. We get to go back to our only hope. It's not in my understanding of that scripture. My hope is in Christ. Friends, David uh, wrote this in a similar way when he said, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Do you see how he valued the Word? He said, 
Your word is a lamp under my feet and a light under my path. What did David mean when he said that? David was saying the same thing Paul just got through saying in Romans 15, 4. The scriptures are the candle that unveils hope, the hope that never disappoints. We live at a time when a colossal number of people have either neither known or have lost touch with the hope that is found in the promises of God. We need to know His promises. I'm talking about a hope that is deeper than a wishing well hope. I'm talking about a hope that's been around longer than Jacob's well's hope. I'm talking about a hope that is not packaged with pain or anxiety. Many have lost their hope in their political leaders. Many have lost their hope in their medical experts. Many have lost their hope in the expectation of an economic upturn. Many have lost their hopes in their lives ever returning to normal. All of these anxieties working together in an attempt to tarnish the hope that never disappoints. Tarnish the way you see it. Dismiss the way you see it. I don't like what's going on out there any more than you do. But I'm telling you, my hope has never been, like I said before, in government, in my own strength. My hope is in one person, and that is Jesus Christ, our only hope. Amen? In Merriam-Webster's dictionary, they have many definitions for hope. Here's one of them. And I think this hope here is probably where most of the world lives, to be honest with you. It says, hope is to want something to happen or to be true. Now that makes sense, I guess. You're hoping this will happen. You're hoping this will work out. You're hoping you will get the job. You're hoping you will get the promotion. You're hoping that girl will say yes when you get on your knee and propose. You're hoping all the time. Friends, I don't know about you. I can't speak for you. But that's the only kind of hope I was acquainted with at one time. Until Christ. Until Christ. The Holy Spirit would use the law like a sledgehammer to break up that fallow ground of my sinful heart. I was so prideful, so egotistical. It was then that I would be introduced to the goal of his command, which is love. Merriam-Webster's definition of hope is okay, but it's stale. It's insufficient in my time of need. I need more sustenance than wanting something or just desiring something to happen or be true. I need to know for certain that He loves me on my worst day. Don't you? Not your best day. That's easy. But do you love me on my worst day? Do you cherish me in my less than Kodak moments? Do you cherish me on those days? I need to know that when I'm lying in a puddle of gloom, despair, and agony. Come on, Hee Haw fans, come on. I need to know when I'm lying in the pool of gloom, despair, and agony on me that He will come to my rescue. I need to know that. In John chapter 5, verses 1 through 9, we find these words. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. 
Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. Now let's just park this on hold for a second. You're all familiar, no doubt, with the healing at the pool of Bethesda. And as I was meditating on this yesterday, I thought, man, if you were to empty every nursing home in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and then lay these needful people beside the pool of Bethesda, you might begin to get an appreciation of what this scene must have looked like as Jesus walked upon it. Despair and impossibilities, the antonyms of hope were at large. These poolside residents were not familiar with the hope that never disappoints. Their grass was withering and their petals were falling. Their only hope was a stirring of the waters, but they still needed a helper to get in the water. Friends, aren't you thrilled that Jesus left us with a helper, the sweet Holy Spirit who helps us into the living waters of Jesus Christ? Friends, there are millions of people Believers and unbelievers that are lying beside the pool of Bethesda with a transitory hope. Lame from crippled emotions, blinded to the goal of love, paralyzed from the indoctrination of the law and refusing to let go of its transitory glory. Embracing the sledgehammer of the law rather than the oil can of the watchmaker makes about as much sense as putting your trust in slave traders, liars, and perjurers. Friends, Jesus came to show us the Father. This is my daddy. He sees you beside the pool. He sees you have no helper. He cares about you. He loves you. This is the one who the Apostle Paul declared is our only hope. The one who gives the gift of the imperishable seed. The one who doesn't need a second chance to make a first impression. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The one who gave us grace, showcased against the backdrop of blessed hope. The one who said, rise, pick up your mat and walk. The one who radiates with the hope that never disappoints. Next scriptures. Jesus is beside the pool of Bethesda, and it says this. One who had been there had been an invalid for 38 years. Why do we need to know that? What's the important part about that? I mean, what if it would have been 36, 32, 24, 15? Why do we need to know this? I don't know why they put that in there, but I can tell you something about numbers. The number 30 in the Bible refers to the right moment of time. Joseph was 30 years old when he came out of prison. He became second highest in command. David was 30 years old when he became king over Israel, highest in command. And Jesus was about 30, the Bible says, when he began his ministry. Joseph saved Egypt. David saved Israel. And Jesus is here to save the world. 
One who was there had been an invalid. I don't even like that word. Invalid. Invalid. Not valid. He had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him a question. What's this question going to be? He says, do you want to get well? Boy, that's a simple question, isn't it? We make evangelism, we make healing, we make Christianity so complicated. Jesus just asked the man the question. He said, do you want to get well? Sir, (laughs) the man, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, rise, pick up your mat and walk at once the man was cured he picked up his mat and walked when i was thinking about that question that jesus asked him do you want to be well it sounded like almost a silly little question for jesus to ask the invalid do you want to be well but when jesus asked that question he was actually asking the man Do you choose to be well? Because that's what it means in the Greek. In other words, Jesus was saying, my daddy's willing. (laughs) I'm willing. Do you choose to take what we give you? See, your will has got to be involved, folks. Do you choose? Do you reach out by faith? You've got to exercise faith. This whole kingdom moves by faith. It wasn't Jesus just laying hands on each person and healing them. He says, do you choose to be well? Do you choose to be healed? Again, your will has to be involved. That's what faith is. That's what faith does. Lying beside the pool of Bethesda must have been a real faith buster, a real faith crusher. All day and all night, you would hear the cries from the invalids. My mama spent the last nine months in a nursing home before she passed. And when I would go and see her, I would say, Mama, did you get a good night's sleep last night? She'd say, Son, you can't sleep around here. They cry all night long. They cry. They reach for the nurses. They're always screaming. They're always talking. Son, you can't get any rest in here. Now imagine lying beside the pool of Bethesda with hundreds, maybe thousands of people, blind, the sick, the lame, the paralyzed, crying all night long. How are you ever going to find any rest in that? Despair and impossibility had supplanted the hope that never disappoints. It had usurped authority over the hope that never disappoints. Friends, I came into the revelation of the finished work of grace because I got tired of hearing my own cries and because I chose to rise from my religious pool of Bethesda and walk in fullness of the new covenant. I got tired of it. And I said, Daddy... We're about to go on a journey. I could see myself saying that. We're about to go on a journey. I don't know where we're going to go, but I'm excited. 
We're going to go on a journey. It took a long time, friends. It's still, I'm a work in progress right now, but I'm a finished work. My default is Jesus, our only hope, my only hope. Kurt Paul Richter was a Harvard and John Hopkins educated biologist, psychobiologist, and geneticist, and he served for many years, even as the director of John Hopkins Psychiatric Clinic. And this guy made a number of significant contributions while he was there. And one of his most famous experiments involved rats. We're always picking on those rats, aren't we? We're always picking on those rats. Kurt knew that rats had a reputation for being able to swim long periods of time. Just throw them in water. They could swim for hours and hours and hours. Sometimes 50 or 60 or even 70 hours nonstop. And for his experiment, he placed rats in a bucket of water and they would swim around and around in the bucket. Some would even dive to the bottom to see, is there a way out of this? And he noticed that they would all give up when they saw no way out. And he said it was the strangest thing. Sometimes within two minutes, they would just drown and sink to the bottom. But then he also noticed that when he allowed the rat to swim in the water. And then when the rat looked like he was about to go under, he would reach down and pick the rat out of there and just hold him in his hands for a couple of minutes. And then he would put him back in the water and that rat would swim for 50, 60, 70 hours. That fascinated him. He says, what is the difference here? You see, when he took the rat out the first time, in his little rat brain, he established in him, someone's going to come and help me. Someone's going to come to my rescue. And it injected a hope inside of even a little rat. Now, friends, you are made in the image of God. You don't have a rat brain. You have his brain. You have the mind of Christ. And so in that little rat's brain, he deduced it down to, I've been saved once. Someone will come and rescue me again. Friends, you and I have been saved once for all. We never need to be saved again. Through salvation, we have been introduced to the hope that never disappoints. Therefore, we can let go of what? We can let go of the ministry that brings death. The ministry I speak about is the law, friends. It is the greatest thing that is troubling the body of Christ. And when we get beyond that, I'll preach something different maybe, but it's troubling if people are just so frustrated with it. The Apostle Paul said that the law was good when used properly. He said that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under the schoolmaster. Paul also wrote that the law was not made for the righteous. I asked you the question, are you righteous? Have you been justified? Have you been born again? Have you been given life from above? Are you his son? Are you his daughter? If the answer is yes, then you have been justified by faith. That's the only way in, friends. And the law is not made for the righteous. The law is not our guide. The Holy Spirit fills that role. Our confidence is through Christ Jesus, our only hope. He is the glory that never fades. 
and the hope that never disappoints. And since we have such confidence, this should give you boldness. This should give you confidence. And since we have such confidence, we are very bold. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 through 16, we find these words. Such confidence, don't you love that? That our salvation, the benefit package comes with confidence. What? That all of our iniquities have been taken away. We've been healed of all of our diseases. We've been crowned with loving kindness and tender mercies. When we open our mouth, he satisfies it with good things so that our youth is renewed like that of the eagle. He says such confidence we have through Christ before God. Now look what he says next. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our sufficiency comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry that brought death, that's the law, friends. If the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was. I love that part. Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? Remember, we talked about being righteous. You have righteousness. He says, how much more glorious is the ministry? That brings righteousness. For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of the one which lasts? Therefore, we have such a hope. We are very bold. The body of Christ, when their default, becomes Christ, our only hope. I'm telling you, you will let go of all these other barnacles that are hanging on you, this performance mentality, this do and be mentality. And you will find yourself in such freedom. You'll find yourself being very bold. Next scriptures. He says, we are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this very day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ, friends, is it taken away. Remember, the law is still there. The law is still good. The law is still perfect, converting the soul. The law is still holy. The law is still righteous but it's not made for the righteous. When we come to Christ, it says it is taken away. Do you see that? Even to this day, when Moses is read, what's he talking about when he says Moses? He's talking about the law. When the law is read, the law was given through Moses. He says, even to this day, when you try to put people under Moses's law, he said a veil covers their heart. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. When you become like that man at the pool of Bethesda that says, I can't trust in anyone. I'm tired of all this crying. And the veil is taken away. 
the veil of doom and gloom and darkness and fright. My closing scriptures and thoughts. Romans chapter 4, verses 18 through 25. Look what this says. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. Isn't that beautiful? Against all hope. In other words, it's saying, Abraham, you had no basis for hope except that word God gave you. In the natural, you had no basis. Sarah is 90 years old. Her womb is dead. You're looking for a child to be your heir. And it says, against all hope, when the odds were stacked against you, when you had a pair of deuces, but the guy across from you had a royal flush, when there was no way for you to win. He says, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. Friends, this is tenacity. This is being sure of a word. This is being sure you hear his voice. And where do we find this comfort? Where do we find this? We find it in the scriptures, Paul said. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. When the despair and impossibility, the antonyms of hope came knocking on Abraham's door, he said, I've already got a word from God. In hope, I'm going to believe. And so Abraham became the father of many nations, just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Strong language, isn't it? I think we get the picture though, don't we? Uh huh. No hope! But yet, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. Abraham had a word from God and nothing was going to move him off of that word. And then Paul writes, yet he, that's Abraham, did not waver through unbelief. In other words, he held on to the hope that never disappoints. He did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness, friends, because he believed. Abraham is a pattern of our covenant today that Abraham just simply believed. Abraham put his faith in God's word. Abraham trusted in the Father. It was a work of the Father's grace even back then, friends. He believed. All we do is believe. It can be this true and this good. The next scriptures. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone. I love that. But also for us. Do you see that? So it shows you very plainly. It hasn't changed. The covenant, yes, is different today. But the pattern is the same. It's by faith in God's word. Jesus Christ is his word. It's by faith in his only son, our only hope. It was credited to him. We're written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. And then that 25th verse of chapter four, the very last verse, I love this. 
he was delivered over to death. That's Jesus, friends. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Justification is righteousness. It's that being born again. It's that giving life from above. It's that becoming a son or a daughter. It says Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life to justify us, declare us innocent in the Father's eyes. Now, do you want to just stop right there? Or do you want to see what your benefit is? Because as you roll over to my final verses, the very signature verses for this message, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, it starts off with the word therefore. What does the word therefore mean? It means for that reason. What reason? It's pointing back to the 25th verse. The verse before it says that he was delivered over to death for our justification and he was raised in resurrection life. And it's because of that reason. Folks, look, it's therefore. It's there. It was for that reason. Therefore, since we have been justified, there it is again, declared innocent. Through faith, it hasn't changed. We have peace with our God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in what? In the hope of the glory of God. I'm boasting not in me, not in myself, not in my provision. I'm boasting in the hope that he's given me, the hope of the glory of God. Next scriptures. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Friends, what kind of hope am I talking about? I'm talking about the hope that never disappoints. In Jesus' name. Father, I thank you so much. You have hidden on the inside of us everything that we need for life and godliness. I think the trouble that we put ourselves in, we run into, is we try to search for hope outside of Jesus Christ, our only hope. When Jesus encountered that man at the pool of Bethesda, a man filled with excuses, a man filled with pity party, a man who had been troubled in his condition for 30 and eight years. It was the right moment of time. That's what that number 30 means. And that number eight means a new beginning. So Father, I thank you that it was the right moment of time for a new beginning. And as the body of Christ is rising up, the same words that you said to him, rise, pick up your mat and walk. As the body of Christ is rising, rising up to this revelation that against all hope, in hope, we have believed. We have believed in our only hope, Jesus Christ. He's not a natural hope. He is the hope of all nations. Father, I thank you so much as this word finds its way into the hearts of those who have been laying beside the pool, lame, blind, and paralyzed far too long.
May this rise up and may a new hope come and supplant that transitory hope, the hope that I'm calling, the hope that never disappoints. In Jesus' name, amen.